as we go on with uh, the summary of the go- uh, of of uh, the Christian uh, way of living. Romans chapter twelve, verses one uh, and two. We look at the last phrase that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But let me let me read verses one and two together, of which this is the conclusion. And uh, remembering this also uh, is the foundation of all that follows. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we confess to you that your will is good and it is acceptable and it is perfect and it is something we wish to know as such more and more. Help help us, Lord, to know it as such through the preaching now. Bring this thought and this conviction further along in our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very similar to what uh, occurred at the end of uh, verse 1, I could say uh, the end of verse 2. These are words which I almost overlooked, almost as an afterthought. The end of verse 1 is, uh, he says that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. Uh, which is your reasonable service. There's a phrase that, uh, that uh, was full of meaning, and I, and I almost overlooked it. So here, we're told not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, that's the full thought, isn't it? No. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what I realized about that phrase is what I realized about the last phrase of verse 1, and that is it is far more than an afterthought. It is really a key thought in both cases being expressed about the way the Christian is to live and the way the Christian is to think about himself as he lives his life as a Christian in this world. The key thought here is the will of God, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, as soon as I say that, you realize, of course, that must be important. Of course, that's got to be primary in what Paul is describing. For here we are considering the Christian man and the Christian life. We're looking at the doctrine of sanctification and our, our, our own growth in holiness. And what else are we talking about when we talk about our own living as Christians, if not... The will of God being realized in our lives or the will, uh, the life rather, which is being conformed not to this world, but to his will. You see, already we realize this is certainly primary. Certainly this is foundational. And that's the whole trouble with the unbeliever, you know. The trouble with the unbeliever is that they reject the will of God, as Paul outlines in chapter one. That's the whole emphasis. If you read the life of the unbeliever against whom the wrath of God is being revealed. The trouble with such a man is that he knows the will of God, but he breaks it. You see, it isn't that he doesn't know that. I'm going to come back to that. He knows the will of God. He's fully aware of it, and yet he has no interest in keeping it. He delights in sin. He delights in breaking the law of God. He's a lawbreaker. He's a rebel. 
And Paul even goes so far as to say, though, it isn't the same word. It's the same idea. At the very end of verse 32, they not only know that they deserve to be judged for such things, but they even approve of those who do likewise. And so here is the picture of man in sin as the one who doesn't approve of God's law, but the one who, who gives his approval to those who break the law of God. That's the trouble with man. That's why the wrath of God is being revealed against him. He's a rebel. He's a lawbreaker. His life doesn't conform to the will of God, but it falls short in every way, all the time. As Paul goes on in chapter 2, he talks about the Jew. The Jew who knows the will of God and approves of it. Chapter 2, verse 18. And there it is the same word that we have in verse 2 of chapter 12. They approve of the law of God. But you know, the trouble with the Jew He says, even though they know it, they approve of it, they boast in it, they don't do it. So the trouble with man, whether he's considered as an unbelieving Gentile or a Jew, is that he knows the will of God, but he doesn't do it. But look at the Christian and you'll find something else, something different. Indeed, this is the real essence of his transformation and the renewal of his mind. It's that his life now lines up with God's will. Again, instead of being conformed to this world, he's being conformed to the will of God by the transformation of his mind. And that is the essential difference between the Christian man and the man of the world. It's the place and the say that the will of God has in his life. You could even say, and many of you, many of you would, I would say this, that that is the essential difference between the man I am now and the man I once was. The essence of my conversion is that now I embrace and delight in the law of God I once hated. Though I always knew it. And so Paul says, as an example of what I'm trying to describe here, is the essence of the Christian position in chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, that you are one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. This is what you used to do, what you used to think, but God be thanked. You were delivered from that to a new form of slavery. Yes, you're a slave now, not to sin, but to God. You're held captive to him and his will. That's what a Christian is, you see. Not only that, but we have many descriptions along those lines in chapter 8. A Christian is someone who doesn't walk according to the flesh. He walks according to the spirit. He has a new way of life, a new focus, a new emphasis. But the essential idea here being expressed at the end of verse 2 is not simply that the Christian is someone whose life now conforms to the will of God. That is true. And that thought is present. But uh, the apostle is saying something actually a bit more specific. He uses a word that he seems to be fond of using, which can be translated either as prove or approve. We already found it in chapter 2, verse 18. The, the Jew is someone who approves of God's will, though they didn't do it. So in the truest sense, they didn't even approve of it. Not in the sense of what Paul means here in chapter 12, verse 2. But in describing the Christian in other descriptions of the life of holiness, we find the apostle expressing the same thought in other places. For instance, and I think this gives helpful 
uh, background to what he's describing here in terms of our own sanctification. He says in chapter 5, verse 8 of Ephesians uh, 8, 8 through 10, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding what is that acceptable, uh, what is acceptable to the Lord. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, sorry. In, 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 in living this life of holiness and sanctification, what you're doing is you're finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Or as he says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, and I pray this, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve, same word, the things that are excellent. So either prove or approve, but you see in the, in the course of living the Christian life, this is what happens. In a similar way, he says, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, it's the same idea in all three places. And we've got to try to understand what exactly it is he's saying. Well, the first thing that we've got to do is to try to understand what the word means. This word that I'm saying he's fond of, which can either be translated as prove or approve. In fact, in Ephesians 5, it's prove. In Philippians 1, it's approve. In Romans 2, it's approve. In Romans 12, it's prove. So there you have, just in the New King James, an even split. And uh, there's a, a different sense, similar but different sense, in each of these translations. Well, the first thing it could mean is that it means to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The sense uh, of those who contend for this is that Paul can't possibly mean that the believer is approving of God's will. In the course of his sanctification, the result is that he approves of God's will because, well, if we were saying that, we would be placing the believer in the position to pass judgment upon God and his will. And it's clear uh, in the case of such men as Robert Haldane that that kind of thought simply won't do. And so Robert Haldane, uncomfortable with the idea of approve, states his preference for prove and says, the word in the original signifies both to prove and approve, but we cannot so properly say approve what is the will of God. The passage seems to assert that to find out and discriminate the will of God with respect to those things that he requires and forbids, it is necessary to be renewed in the mind. So the end result is you find Paul saying something like this. By the renewal of your mind, you're able to discern what the will of God is. Well, the second meaning is that it means to approve in the sense of agreeing or delighting in God's will. Even as the psalmist expresses in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. Now, I don't know if he says next, I, immediately my mind goes here. Maybe it's the next line or he says it elsewhere. Your commandments are my delight. Here is a man who loves God's law. He's delighting in it. He's relishing in it or relishing it. He's expressing love and approval. 
Well, you see, some people are uncomfortable with this idea, and you understand why. They feel as though the new man is passing judgment upon God's law, but it should be clear already that I'm not uncomfortable with that idea. I even find the psalmist doing it. And so if Robert Haldane says it's the former, it means to prove in the sense of discerning what it is. John Murray and Martin Lloyd-Jones say it's the latter. It's to approve, and I agree with them both. John Murray says it is to approve. It is this meaning with a distinct shade of thought, namely to discover to find out or learn by experience what the will of God is and therefore to, alert, to learn how approved the will of God is. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the apostle therefore is telling us that those who renew their minds will be able to discover certain things about the will of God with the sense that they are able to approve of it, he later says. But in either case, let us see how this fits in with the bigger idea that's being expressed in verse 2. That the way we are able to do this, the way this becomes possible for the believer, either that we are approving or approving the, the will of God, is by the renewal of the mind, in contrast to the unbeliever who can do neither. His mind is set at enmity to God. He's neither able to prove or approve the will of God. So Paul says you are to renew your mind in order that, and that really is the key word here, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It is as, as the result of the renewal of the mind that the believer is able to discover in the sense either approving or approving what that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is. So again, as we look at this passage along with the others, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 10 or Philippians chapter 1 verse 10, or was, it, or was it verse 20? No, it was verse 10. Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. It's clear that somehow or other, in the process of living the Christian life and making advancements in it, no longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of his mind, we as Christians are able either to prove or approve the will of God as that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, before we come in the third place to how it is that we come to that discovery, let me say next, in the second place, something about the importance of God's will. Because that's really the focus here. And so we've got to say something about that. Let us see what becomes clear about God's will. Once our mind is renewed, is that it is good and acceptable and perfect. The Christian has either proved that it is really so in the sense of uh, discerning it, both in himself and to others, or he has approved of God's will as that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In either case, that is what he sees about God's will. Well, the first thing I would say about that, and this is our proper starting point, is that we must see that it is so to God. God approves of his own will, we could say, or God's will is approved unto himself, first and foremost, as that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That has got to be our proper starting point. Think, think about this. Why is it said by the Apostle Paul here about God's will that it's good and acceptable and perfect? And what is it that makes it so? 
And in what relation does the believer discover this about God's will? Does he discover it in relation to himself and uh, in his own obedience? Primarily, no. It is discovered to be good and acceptable and perfect in its relation to God himself, for it is God's will and not ours that we are considering. And as we think of God in relation to his own will, first and foremost, as God considers his own will and executes it, he delights in it because it is his own will. He delights in it as that which is good and acceptable and perfect to whom? To himself. Not to us, you see, but to himself. It would be wrong then to say that God discerns this or he discovers this about his will. He thinks he thinks of his will and then it happens and he says, you know, as I look at that, I see that it really is good and acceptable. No, it's not something that he discovers. This is something that he knows and he approves of it because that's what it is. It's his own will. God would never do anything but that which was good and acceptable and perfect. But let us also see that his will is these things simply because it is his will and he has done them. In other words, antecedent to the will of God and its exercise is God himself. Before you ever speak of the will of God, you must speak of God. And God, let us see, cannot act but in such a way that is good and acceptable And perfect to himself always. And so because God is God. All that he wills must be all these things always. And here's the real point. Who decides this? Who determines what is good and acceptable and perfect? Not the believer. But God. It is God who passes judgment. It's God who approves of these things as such. Yes, of course, his will is good and acceptable and perfect. Why? Because that will originated in God himself. Of course, he will always approve of his own will. He looks into his mirror as, uh, as into his, his will rather as a mirror and he beholds in his will his own perfections. Those things which are good and acceptable and perfect. And so before we ever speak of the believer approving Or proving God's will. Let us first see why it is so. And why it must be so. Because it's God's will. If I were to try uh, to make the point in a different way. I could do so by stating it in the reverse. Whatever does not conform to God's will. Or live up to its perfect standard is bad. It's not good you see it's bad. Not only that but it's unacceptable to whom? To God. God does not accept it. You see, he doesn't view it as a kind of neutral thing. No, if it does not live up and conform to his will, it is bad, it is is unacceptable to him. He's displeased with it. Not only is that which falls short of his perfect will, but is that which is at odds with it. Do we see this? That Christian service, because that after all is what we're considering in verses 1 and 2. Christian service, the Christian living As a sacrifice to God, which is his reasonable service, is no service if it does not conform to that good and perfect will. To use the language of verse one, it will never be considered holy and acceptable to him if it does not conform to his will. And so we come next, speaking still of the importance of God's will. We speak of it to the believer. God's will 
is important to God, obviously, but it ought to be important as well to the Christian man. The Christian man is someone with a new mind, and it's being renewed day by day. He's giving himself to his renewal constantly. And the thing that he is seeing more and more through this process of renewal about God's will is that it's good and acceptable and perfect. You see, this is what I'm trying to say. Even as God looks into his will as a mirror, beholding his own goodness and perfection, so the believer does likewise, looking into God's will as a mirror and beholds not his own goodness and perfection, but that of God himself. And so he begins to delight in it more and more as that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's approving of it with his own mind. His thoughts are beginning to line up with God's thoughts about his own will. You see, he's doing more than just saying, it's God's will, I ought to keep it. He's going beyond that. As God delights and approves of his own will, so the believer begins to do likewise. You see, here is the fount of Christian piety. Here is the fount of all religious service. The way to serve God is to do his will. It's to obey his commands. It's to delight in them. And so the true sense is not that we're discerning God's will. We're finding out what it is now that we're Christians. We didn't know it before we were Christians, but now we know. No, even the unbeliever can do that. For in his disobedience, he only shows that he's doing what he knows he ought not to do. Paul says that very clearly in Romans chapter 1. And again, if you think back in your own experience when you sinned as an unbeliever, you, you knew what to do. You just simply were rebelling. The sense is not now that we know what the will of God is. It's rather that our attitude about God's law has changed. And not only that, but it is changing more and more. Our thoughts are beginning to line up with God's. We're beginning, as Van Til said, to think God's thoughts after him about his own will. We are delighting it even as God delights in it. We are saying that the will of God is these things to us. Good and acceptable and perfect, even as they are to God. You see, this thought of approving, and that's where we find ourselves goes all the way back to the garden. It's our, it has to do with our attitude about God's law. It's not what we know, but it's what we think about what we know. That's the real essence. We could say, as we often do, it really has to do with our heart, not with our mind. So go back to the garden and what do you see? We find Adam and Eve fully able to discern the will of God. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they disapproved of it. They disapproved of what they knew. And that's the real trouble with man going back to Adam. He knows what is right, but he chooses to disobey. Why? Because along with Adam, he thinks harshly of God's law and harshly of God's will. He disapproves of it in that sense. He says of God, what a harsh, what an unrest, uh, what a a restricting rather, what an unloving God who would keep me from doing what I want to do. That was You see, the essence of the lie of the devil, and that's what Adam and Eve believed. They knew the the will of God, but they didn't really think it was good. They didn't really think it was acceptable or perfect. They were passing judgment with respect to God's law. 
in a negative sense. And that's the essence of man's rebellion and man's sin ever since, again, as the Apostle Paul outlines in Romans chapter 1. They know that those who do such things will be condemned. And yet they not only do them, but they pass judgment, uh, they approve of those who do them. But the Christian when his mind is renewed, begins to delight and to approve of what he once despised. It isn't that he says, oh, here's the law of God. I see it now. I didn't see it before. No, it's what he sees about God's law. That's what's changed. Again, what he once despised, now he delights in. He sees not the narrowness of God's commands, their restricting nature, as Satan would have us to see, but he sees their broadness. That's another line from Psalm 119, by the way. Not only, oh, how I love your law, Lord, but, but your commandments are very broad. Do you understand why he said that? They're not narrow and restricted. They're very broad. You see, you can look at God's law in two ways. The scope is vast. We grant in either case, but we can either see its scope as that which is restricting, or we can delight in that. Uh, the scope, uh, uh, that scope is something which is very broad indeed. And so the believer, as he is exploring the vast, broad scope of God's law, begins to say to himself first, here is something good. I delight in God's will. I love it and I approve of it because it's good. Good is that which comes from God And as an expression of his character, good because I now see that my father in heaven isn't against me, but he's for me. This is something that's good for me. It promotes life. It promotes happiness. It promotes well-being. Go back to Psalm 1 and you'll see that. Why did he delight in God's law? Because it gave him life. He was like a tree planted by streams of living water. He says to himself. Is there anything better than the will of God? I used to think, you know, that my will was best. But now I'm happy that my will might be crossed in order that the goodness of his will would come to pass in me. Not your will, but uh, not my will, but yours, O Lord. For your will is good. I don't know about mine. And so he begins next as he explores the vast scope of God's law. To approve of it as something also that's acceptable. Here is acceptable, reasonable worship to God. Verse 1. It's what God accepts. It's what God requires of me. Not my will, but his. And so, go along with the thought. It's not only acceptable to God. I see that. But because it's acceptable to God, it's acceptable to me as well. Because it's his will and not mine. It's what I want for myself. I no longer want my will, Lord. I want your will. But I also begin to see it's perfect. The perfect will of God. Let me ask you, is there any other way to speak of the will of God? Can a man ever approve of God's will until he sees its perfection? We approve of it because it's perfect. And so long as we see it as anything less as that which is the trans, uh, transcript of God's perfect will. You know, Jesus said you must be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. 
I've, I've heard and read so many trying to undo the scope of that. He's just saying you need to be whole. <laughs> Something like that. No, no. He's saying you must be perfect. That's the standard. Because again, the law is, is like a mirror. It's a transcript of God's own character, his own perfection. And in the law, we behold his own attributes, his own righteousness, his own perfections. And the man who looks into the law and sees anything less than perfection is the standard is a man who disapproves of the law. He's a man who can't approve of it. He can't really delight in it. He's a man like Adam in the garden. He's objecting to God's will because he doesn't see what's really true of it. Its glory is obscured unto him. And of course, he won't want it for himself. But once we find by the renewing of our minds how good and how acceptable and how perfect the will of God is, the more we will want it and the more it will be approved to us even as it is to God. And we will want it more and more for ourselves. But let me say something else. And this brings me back to the John Murray quote I read earlier. Let me, let me read it again. He says, it is to approve, it is this meaning with a distinct shade of thought, namely to discover, to find out, or learn by experience what the will of God is, and therefore to learn how approved the will of God is. Well, let me say something else. Along these lines, I want to suggest that the real secret to this discovery. Which I would say Adam had to learn by painful experience, having broken God's will, which we have to learn by painful experience uh, along with him. This discovery occurs not merely in the mind. It is the result of the renewal of the mind, but it goes beyond that. It occurs in the life. It's as a living sacrifice. As we're living as a living sacrifice, that's where you'll discover this about God's will. You see, it's not just what you think about God's will that matters. It's doing God's will. Because, you see, and Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, no man ever really delighted in or approved of God's will who didn't actually make a practice of it. Again, here was the fallacy of the Jew, Romans chapter 2. They said they approved of it, unlike the Gentiles, but did they really? No, they didn't, because they didn't do that law, which they said they approved of. And so the Christian is someone with a new mind. And because of this, he not only says he approves of God's law, and thinks approving thoughts of God's law, but because he does, he actually does it. He makes a practice of God's will and God's law. And it is in this way that he is able to prove, both to himself and to others, that God's will is actually good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the way to prove that God's law is really good and acceptable and perfect the way to uh, rebuff Satan in his lie that it really isn't, and we say, no, you know, it really is, is to do it. Not to think about it. You don't, you know, I've heard many preachers say this, so let me say it. You don't want to be found debating Satan. No, the way you counter him is you simply ignore him and you go on with God's will. This isn't so much a battle for the mind as it is a battle for the life. The way that you prove it is by doing it. You can think all the happy thoughts you want about God's law and you will go no further than the Jew 
You know, I love the law. I boast of the law. I approve of it. But have you done it? The way to prove it is to do it. And then you will see, you will discover, as Murray says, by experience in your life, just how wrong Satan was and just how wrong you were in your unhappy thoughts about God's law. You will become like the psalmist, one who is continually expressing your delight, the delight that came by experience in doing God's perfect and holy will. This is a process, you see, that occurs throughout the Christian life. It doesn't come all at once. It is something that occurs more and more as we live out the Christian life. It comes, as Murray says, by experience. Let me close with these thoughts. Where do we find God's will? There's many answers to that, but I would say find it here. Find God's will in his law. Find his will in the Ten Commandments, or I could speak more broadly. You want to find God's will? Read the Bible. You will find God's will in the Bible. All right, find it. Next, learn it. And what is God's will for you in the Bible? Well, here is God's will. This is the hardest thing that we ever heard, but we've got to accept it. It explains the whole process of sanctification. And you see... This is something we might not say is good or acceptable to us. God's will is not your happiness, beloved. It's your holiness. This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. That's what you're learning. And you see, so long as you are resisting that, so long as your prayers are always, oh, God, make my life easy. Take away the hardship. I'm tired of the trials. I'm tired of the tribulations. Do you realize what you're doing? You're saying the will of God is bad. You're disapproving of it. You are calling into question its perfection. Oh, Paul says you've got to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do so by giving yourself to a study of the scriptures. And then your thoughts will begin to conform to God's. And you will say when God brings trials into your life. Well, isn't it like a loving father to chastise those whom he loves? Isn't he after something higher, eminently higher than my happiness? He's after my holiness. And you know, that's what I want too. That's the will of God for me. That's my will for myself. Do you see how this begins to play itself out in your life? Do you see how the Christian is still disapproving of God's will and calling it into question and really in essence agreeing with Satan? That's the trouble. That's the trouble. You see, we're about to consider in Romans chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, things that will challenge us in everything we do, everything. That's why I said in the first sermon, it is always dangerous to preach God's law. People say, give me illustrations, give me application. And then I begin to illustrate uh, your sin and my sin. And I begin to apply the need for obedience unto you. And you say, you know, I don't like that very much. But you should and I should because we realize that we're not now what we are meant to be. Isn't that true? Can't you say that as a Christian, the process of sanctification has only begun in me and I want to see it carried forward. I want to see God's will, not mine, realized in my life. Come however it will. That's what it means to approve of the will of God. That's not the easiest thing to do. How can I read Romans chapter 12? I promise you, your feelings will be hurt. How can I read it without my feelings being hurt? Well, you can't. You can't. But even then, as you are cast down into that valley of humiliation, you're being helped by God. That's what we all need. 
That's what it means to approve of God's will as that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so let me say something else. Do you see how much the renewal of the mind must be taken up with thoughts of his will? What is it that you think about? What are the thoughts that fill your days? Well, if you would be spiritually minded to use the language of the Apostle Paul and of John Owen, you must learn to think in a spiritual manner. You must take up your thoughts with his will, not yours. You must see this as the goal of this process of transformation and of the renewal of your mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But let me say this lastly. As Paul spoke of mercies in verse 1, and he'll speak of grace in verse 3, so we must keep these things in view as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling always. We are never dealing solely with God's law. Never. A major discovery that every Christian makes about God's will is that salvation comes to us as a free gift. All of it. All of it is free grace. Let me tell you what I mean. To see justification as God's work and sanctification as our work is the error of legalism. And so Thomas Boston, in uh, his notes on the marrow of modern divinity, a book that I would recommend every Christian read, Thomas Boston speaks of the gospel method of sanctification, and so would I. This is what he says. Here is the gospel method of sanctification in which the will of God is revealed to us. That sinners should be sanctified by Christ Jesus by faith in him. Sinners justified by Christ Jesus by faith in him. Sinners sanctified by Christ Jesus by faith in him. Any other view, he would say, places the believer back under a covenant of works. Places the believer back under law. And so let us see under which covenant we stand as believer. We do not stand under a covenant of works. Let us not seek to go back. But we stand under grace. You are not under law, but you are under grace, Paul says triumphantly. Let us see what this means as we begin to live out the Christian life. And let us see and approve that here is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That sinners should be saved. That means they should be justified and they should be sanctified by the very same means. Namely, by the grace of God which is found in Jesus Christ and which is received by faith alone. I am not setting before you, beloved, a way of works. I am still setting before you that same way of grace and of mercy. And so I say with Paul, through the grace given me, verse 3, and by the many mercies of God, you be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. And let us come to the table.